Hey, this is Andrew from Mountain Park Church, and you are listening to our Mountain Park Church podcast. Our genuine desire, wherever you're listening to this from, whenever you're listening to this, our genuine desire is that uh, these points of discussion as, as we connect in with what we're teaching our church locally in Niagara, I, our, our hope and our desire is that these things would stir and provoke and ignite in you a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus and his spirit-driven formational work in you for the sake of the world around you. That's the mandate of our church is to provoke and ignite a culture uh, in us that is hungry for the presence of Jesus. So we want to stir in you in the deep places of your heart and your soul and your life. We want to stir in you um, a holy fire again. And um, this week as we walk through uh, James, Pastor Alex is preaching and uh, we're walking through James chapter 2 and James is teaching on preferential treatment. Pastor Alex did a great job this week in um, not only sort of connecting us with what James was speaking to specifically with the original audience, but how we can apply this today, what the Spirit might be saying to us today, what he might be convicting us on today, as um, we so often find in our social circles and in our in our culture today right now, there's very little very little uh, appetite for or patience for people who don't uh, agree with us on everything, politically, socially, culturally, theologically, doctrinally, uh, all of the lees. We don't uh, really give a lot of time or space for people that don't think exactly the way that we do, don't behave exactly the way that we do, people that would seem to be a bit of a nuisance to us. We often jettison and um, the church is becoming, um, is, is in danger of sliding into deeper echo chambers. And this is a great call from Pastor Alex for us in this century, in our 21st century life and how to apply James. So without further ado, uh, here is Alex and our next part of James. Have a great week. So Hayden's going to read for us um, from chapter two. So if you want to turn your booklet or in your Bible to James two. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious God, Lord Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and, other, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to, the, say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't, the ones who, aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But 
you dishonor the poor. Isn't, the rich, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into the court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the, the royal law as you found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, have, if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you still have broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Awesome. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, yeah, you can go give my hand. Or, give my hand. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's just pause and pray as we um, go to study the word of God today. Lord Jesus, um, we're just so thankful for your love and your mercy in our lives. And what we do right now is we come before your word. We don't want to hear the words of man, for they do no good to us. They may give us some information, but they will never bring about transformation. So Spirit of God, we ask that you would speak to us today. We humble ourselves under your Lordship Jesus Christ and your word so that it might form us into your image. We humble ourselves, realizing that our understanding is limited, but with you, Holy Spirit, you might open our minds to the truth that we might live it out and glorify your name. Let all glory and all honor and all praise be given to the King of Kings. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are uh, jumping into James, and uh, yeah, so humbled. I'm just humbled by his grace and his mercy um, that we get to read his word. We get to fall under it. And I've been wrestling with, with preaching this week. Um, I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> um, just so humbled that he would pick me. You know, that's what he does, right? He just picks us and he loves us. And it's so great. Um, and so for us to understand James 2, we actually have to go back. Let's jump into James 1. So we have to realize that when we read our modern Bibles, we're obviously reading in English and they weren't read, written in English. And, and we're noticing and we're walking through numbers. So James 2 verse 1 through 13. These are modern additions. They are put in because they help us understand where we are in the text. It's a very large book, and so they add them later on. James, when he's writing this, is not writing it with, with our numbers in mind. He's not dividing up chapter 1 and chapter 2. So he has no idea that he's just started chapter 2. Okay? He's had no idea. He's just writing. 
And if we understand James, we need to understand it less like a letter and more like a sermon. And James is not holding back. He is throwing down from the moment. His intro is like one verse and then he just goes for it. And you can tell, you can tell that he knows these people and that he loves them dearly because he is not pulling any punches, but he is going hard right away and he's saying things that, is, that would be really offensive. And if they didn't love him, they would walk out of his church. But they know that he is their elder and he is teaching them and so they are walking under this teaching. And so let's go to, to James 1. Because this really is the connection to James 2. We can't really go into James 2 without really going back to what Andrew was talking about last week. It says this, James 1, 26. Now, I love James. James is like Proverbs of the New Testament. It's kind of like Christianity for dummies. Like it's just really simple and he just gives it to us and he just tells us what it is to be a follower of Christ and how to live. And I don't know about you, but I just need some simplicity like that. Sometimes I get lost with Paul. Andrew's like, yeah, I get it. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> and so James, I like it because it's just simple. And so he says this, if you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourselves and your religion is worthless. Man, that's simple. And if you notice, this is actually kind of the crux that holds the whole book together. That actually he's saying these three things, he's going to come back to it. This he comes back to in, in chapter three. That your tongue, what you say matters. How you act matters. What you're saying to people and how you're treating people, those are the things that matter. And if you say that you go to church all the time and you you speak to people in such a disrespectful and hateful way, your religion means nothing. Wow. Let's include posting. Whatever platform you're on. Verse 23. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father. So he goes and tells you what it's not. He says, it's not when you let your tongue say whatever you want it to say, when you want it to say it, to whoever, whoever you want it to say. That's worthless religion. So then he goes on and he says, here's what is true religion, pure religion in the sight of God the Father. Means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress. Andrew mentioned, that's not just orphans and widows. You know, It's not like somebody needs help and you're like, are you an orphan? No, okay, sorry. It's not true religion. Figure it out. and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So he gives us these, these three things and he says, Here's, here you go. You want to live Christianity? You are a church that has now been spread out all over the place? Now listen, if we in the North American church put together church planting, multiplication um, platforms, and we're like, we're gonna spread the gospel and we're gonna put a plan together. We get all the best minds, at least we think we do, and we come together and we put together plans and they have phases and they're gonna happen and we're gonna spread out the gospel and we're gonna do a great plan. Well, God has different plans. And James, there's no, there's no plans. You know the plans? There's an emperor who rises up that persecutes them and kills them. And what do they do? They run everywhere. 
They have to just go. They leave most of their stuff and they're running everywhere. And what are they doing when they get somewhere? Well, they're preaching the gospel because that's what Jesus is. They take him with him wherever they go. And what happens from it is that all these churches are being planted all over Rome. They can't stop it. See, we would have put together a six-step six plan and would have been able to have a name that would lead it, and there would be, but Jesus had a different plan. See, this is what I want you to know today, that whatever you're going through, no matter how terrible it is, it can be the worst of situations. Jesus uses it for his glory. Jesus can use the broken situation you're in and make it beautiful. I don't get it. I don't know how he does it. But I stand here today preaching the gospel because my father left my mother. And because of that, she found Jesus. In that broken state, she finds Jesus. And we grow up to know Jesus. This is what Jesus does. And if you're in a broken situation and you feel helpless, I need you to know that your, your hope is found in Jesus Christ. And so what James is doing is he's actually teaching us what it is to be a follower of Christ. And he's teaching us through this church. Now remember, Andrew keeps on telling us, it cannot mean for us something it did not mean for them. So we have to understand who the author is, James, and we have to understand who the hearer is, Jewish believers who have been spread out all over Rome. And he's saying, hey, you have been spread out all over Rome. You don't have a home. You are outsiders, but I need you to know something. And here's the main point, if you're writing down what the main point of James is this. It is that the church, Christians, live different than the world. And so he's gonna explain to you how that's going to happen. And he takes out for the rest of the time, he just breaks down what it means to be the church in the world. And what's so cool is here he goes, Verse 26 and 27, he gives this broad overview, like pastors do, just this broad overview of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Don't say dumb stuff. Take care of those in need. Stop being tainted by the world around you. I mean, that, that's a good three-point sermon right there. Like, James, you, you, you're good. You should definitely have a book in the Bible. But then he does what great, great preachers do. He then takes it from concept. Like, here's the three points. And he goes, here's how I'm gonna show you what it is. And this is what happens in verse two. And he nails it right away. I love it. He says, he says it in the ESV. I love it because he's just so blunt. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. In ours, it says, dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord if you favor some people over others? He pinpoints it. And I think it's something we all hate, right? Favoritism. We all hate favoritism unless we're doing it. Then we're like, well, it's not favoritism. It's, right? Anyone? See, I remember, I remember being in, in grade six and, and, and 
I was the typical grade six boy, just having fun, loving life, loved sports. I was present at school for sports. Um, and so I remember just one, just one random day, I'm just hanging out. It's day like any other day. And then from one recess to the next, I remember the tenor, the, the feeling in the room switched. It, was, it, w- it went from like, hey, life is good. And it wasn't because of a test. It, and it was like, everyone is mad at me. I remember all my, all my friends, almost said homies, like, because <laughs> of how I talked in grade six. All my homies in grade six. Um, and all of them turned on me. And they were all giving me like the cold shoulder. And I'm like, what is? So I go out to recess and none of them are talking to me. None of them are playing with me. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And for the rest of the day, they just would ignore me. And I love people. I don't know if you know this about me. So it was killing me. I was trying to act cool. I was like, I don't care, homies. Right? I was trying to act cool, but it really hurt me. And I realized through that process, it it took a while, actually. And here's what happened. Do you guys want to know the story? Here's what happened. I'm sitting there, and there's this letter being passed around. And it's this confession of my love for this. So there was a girl in our class, and she was like, (laughs) okay, so here's the story. So there was like a popular girl in our class and, and somewhat popular me, and we were kind of rivals, and we didn't really like each other. And so this letter starts going around confessing my love of this girl that me and my friends were not supposed to like. And they're all mad at me, like, how dare you not tell us that you love this woman? And I'm like, and I had no idea for weeks. And then the letter shows up and has my signature at the bottom. I'm like, I never wrote this. I don't know what happened. So all of this happens and all my friends desert me. And then anyways, it's a long junior high drama. But the truth is this, right? We've all been in situations like that. Not that had letters written about you, but you've all been in a situation where you're an outsider, right? Where you've been, you feel like an outsider. You go into a situation and you are the outsider and you feel, it feels terrible. But here's the truth as well. We've also been in a situation where we have made feel, people feel that way, right? See, we, we remember the times where we've been left out and we feel like everyone's turned on us, but often we forget, maybe not even knowingly, where we create people to feel like outsiders. And James is talking right to this point. And he's saying, We should not show favoritism because it's terrible. And all of us would agree with that, right? We hate it. I was asking Jess, I was like, man, what what are some stories? Do we have any stories? Like, I'm trying to think of stories of of favoritism. And, And Jess is like, nope, my mom never showed me favoritism. I'm like, you're right. We grew up in the 80s and 90s where the era was no favoritism. I'm gonna show you reverse favoritism. And so what did my mom do for me? She's like, hey, she was my gym teacher, by the way. She was like, you could run. She's like, everyone needs to run three laps. Alex, six. What? She's like, yeah, you're my kid. I'm like, and? Just go run. I'm like, 
right? Anyone else grow up in that kind of environment? I was the opposite of racism. And so here's what James does. James gives, oh, sorry. Yeah, that's good. Opposite of racism. Yep. That's what James is saying as well. It's a good point. So James is going to give you three points in this passage where he's saying, hey, listen, here is what the church is going to look like. Remember, his point in the book of James is this. The church looks different than the world. And in this situation, here are three things that the church needs to do to look different than the world around them. The first is this, no favoritism. Let's read it, let's read it again, ready? Dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in your glorious Lord Jesus if you, you favor some people over others? Now, here's the really cool thing. So he, he makes a statement, right? He's a, he, he's a master preacher right here. So he's making a statement to get your attention. He's saying, don't show favoritism. But he doesn't just say the statement. Then he gives the example. He continues on the example. He says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another person comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich, but you say to the poor one, you can sit o- stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? So here's what we need to understand. When we're... He's calling us not to show favoritism. But here's what we don't understand. We're like, yes, this is, this is something that we all agree with. But I need you to understand that this is actually true within the Jewish faith. Remember, who's he writing to? Jewish followers of Christ. He's writing to Jewish followers of Christ. So they actually have a deep belief that favoritism and being partial towards people is wrong. Watch this. Turn with me uh, or just look on the screen, Leviticus 19, 15 says this, do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich. Isn't that interesting? It says both. Don't, don't favor the poor over the rich and don't favor the rich over the poor. Show no partiality. This is Leviticus 19. This is the law that was given to Moses. This is what Israel grew up in. Now, when we think about the Old Testament and we think about the old laws, the 613 laws, often we're like, well, those are archaic. They're they're just so brutal and they're not loving. No, you need to read them. They are really loving and really compassionate and value human life like no one else. If you want to see a comparison, go back and look at the Assyrians, how they treated people, and then see how the Levitical code treated even foreigners, which is outsiders. It's full of love and compassion and fairness. That's Leviticus 19. Then Deuteronomy 10, 17. This is when they're about to walk into the the promised land. And Moses is giving them kind of the outline of what God is calling them to. And then he gives, he explains who he is through Moses. He says this. He says, for the Lord is your God, 
your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the, might, or the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality and accepting no bribes. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and give them food and clothing. Again, showing that there's no favoritism, there's no partiality in God alone. And then it jumps to Acts 10, 34. In the New Testament, um, Peter has gone to Cornelius' house and seeing that the Spirit is being poured out on them, and he says this. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no partiality. We have to understand that this is a deep-seated truth within the Jewish community that there is no favoritism. There is no partiality. Here's what James is saying to the church back then and today. There should be no partiality. We should not treat rich people better than poor people and we should not treat poor people better than rich people. People should walk in here and be loved because they are image bearers of God. Guys, we are, we are in a culture that is dividing in so many ways, that is creating subgroup on subgroup and you get farther down in your YouTube feed and you get farther down in your social media and you get divided and divided and those people are the enemy. We need to understand the church is not called to that. Do not be seduced by this world. We need to be formed into the image of Christ, which is one of no favoritism, no partiality, not to the rich or to the poor, loving of all equally. People should walk into the church and they should be absolutely blown away by the diversity and the love that is in the house of God. James is using every single tool he can to explain this to the church. He says this, he makes this blunt statement, do not show partiality. And then he says this, here's the example, all of you can know. Now what we don't understand in our middle class kind of North American life is that they didn't understand a middle class. There wasn't a middle class when he's writing this. There were the handful of rich, and mostly the poor. The church was mostly full of poor people. And when a rich person came in, they would know about it. And they would want to help that person have a seat of honor because if we get them to like here, guess what we get? Money, benefits. James is saying that doesn't mean anything. This is not why you love people. You love people because they're image bearers of God. You love people because, and he's gonna push us because Christ loves us. He doesn't only give us an example, then he jumps down and he asks questions. Watch this in verse five and six. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Now remember, they're, they're watching as their brothers and sisters are being spread out all over Rome because they're losing every one of their possessions. 
and they're seeing God move powerfully. He's not making a statement that no rich people can, can serve God. What he's doing here is he's pointing out something. He's using a literary device to prove something to the people listening. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, isn't it the poor people who really are bringing about the kingdom of God? And then they're going, wow, yes, we're being spread out all over Rome and God's kingdom is coming. People are coming to know God. This is amazing, and this is true today. Guys, we live, I know most of us are not rich and wealthy in a North American context, but when we look at the world, we are wealthy. We live better than most in history. We live better than most in the world. But if you look at the world and you look at the church in the developing world, it is blowing up and you're seeing people's lives being transformed. Have you ever sat with someone who has little wealth but is incredibly strong in faith? It blows me away. When I go on missions trips and they talk to me about how they don't have a retirement plan, but God has been faithful to them and taking care of them. My heart is like, whoa, do I have this kind of faith? We are seduced, if we're honest, by wealth. We are seduced in this North American culture by comfort. And what James is not saying is that wealth is the problem. He's saying that we shouldn't show favoritism to people based on what they have, but should love people based on the image of God in them. And then, he finishes off with a dagger. Like any good preacher, he's gonna leave with verse nine. Watch this. In verse nine, he says, but if you favor some people over others, now he's just made the point in verse one. He's given the example, and then he's asked rhetorical questions to help you move the listener to where he wants to be, and then he's just gonna dagger someone's heart. And he says, if you favor some people over others, just in case, he's gonna, he's gonna say, just in case you feel like you might get away with this, you are committing sin. No questions. You are committing sin when you show favoritism. When you love someone more because they benefit you, you are sinning. Whoa, James. <laughs> Let's maybe uh, take it back a bit. Let's focus on, I don't know, the big sins, you know, like sexual sin or, or maybe murder. And this is, if you look, he actually goes into this in verse 10 and verse 11. He highlights those big sins that we like to highlight. He says, hey, you say I don't commit murder or, or adultery, but if you break one law, you are a, a lawbreaker. He's pointing out. Don't think that just because you don't do those big sins, but you show partiality that you are not sinning. You are a lawbreaker if you show partiality. Guys, our church should be so different than the world. We should not be so divided by politics. We should not be so divided by wealth. We should not be so divided by personal opinion of this or that. But what we should be is coming into the house of God 
under Christ and we should be different than the world. The world should look at the church and say, wow, how does that diverse group come together and be in unity under Christ? How is that possible? And then we get to spread the gospel. Number one, we don't show favoritism. Number two, we show true love. James 2, 8 and 9. It says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, if you favor some people over others, you are committing sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Now, this is really important. When he says this, remember, who is James? He's the brother of Jesus. When you're reading this, you cannot take you cannot read James and not jump back into the Gospels. It's gonna, when he makes statements, he's gonna make you jump back into some of the teachings of his brother. He wants you to go back to what his brother taught and he's gonna actually expound on it and teach from it. And so what this one does is it points us to Luke 10. Turn with me to Luke 10. Luke 10, 25, it says this. One day, an expert of the law, the religious law, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered. The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. Jesus is teaching something and James has just pulled from that and he wants you to go back to Luke 10 and be like, hey, this is what I'm talking about. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, when you love God, you will love people. And so he says this, the church, what is the church that is spread out all over Rome, the known world, what should they be known for? Love. They should be known primarily for the love of God. Look, the truth is this. You cannot love the world around you like you should if you don't love God first. I know it's a pretty controversial thing and people are often like, no, there's good people who love. No, not the truest form of love. It comes from Christ and him alone. And so if we want to be a church that is loving we must love God. See, it's when we come to Christ and we love him with all our mind, all our heart, all our soul. It's when we do that, that it actually transforms us into his image. And then as it transforms us into his image, the second point is this, is that we love our neighbor. See, we will love our neighbor because he says this. First is this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Now, Andrew said this last week. When he says first and second, we think highest value, secondary value. When Jesus is saying this, here's what he's saying. He's saying highest value, equal value is loving others. You cannot truly love God if you don't love others. And we know this, right? This is the critique of the North American church, that we're full of hypocrites and we judge people and don't truly love people, right? We want our air-conditioned sanctuaries, but we don't want to help poor people. Right? This is the critique I hear all the time from people. But here's the truth. 
We need to love our neighbors. When we love God, it transforms us and it moves us to a place where we truly love others. And if it doesn't, it's not true love. It's self-love. And you're somehow using God as, as a mini version of God that will benefit you and accomplish your goal. That's not Christianity. Christianity is loving God for what he's done for us. And from that point, being able to, to then love others, which is difficult, but we love others. And then it jumps us. Here's the interesting thing. Luke 10, continue with me. In Luke 10, it then goes into the Good Samaritan teaching. So he says this. And then the, the teacher of the law, he thinks he can catch Jesus. And so he says this to him. He says, hey, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Which is this, this Jewish man goes out. He's on a business trip. He gets beaten, stolen, everything robbed from him. And then here comes the Pharisee who's going to take care of him, but he doesn't want to deal with it. He's kind of gross. And then the teacher of the law comes and he steps over him. He doesn't want to deal with it. And then here comes the good Samaritan who takes care of him, bandages his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a, a hotel or what we would call a hospital. And then he takes care of him. This is what the church is meant to be. What Jesus is saying this, he's saying, look, you want to love God, love the people around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That person you're thinking about right now. Love that person. You know, the person you work with that you don't really like. Yeah, love them. And he's like, his point here, James is pointing out, the whole thing that he's pointing out is this. Why would you love these people? Well, because Jesus loved you. So he actually says, because here's, here's the truth, right? We look at how, to show, how do we not show favoritism? It's really hard. It's really hard to not show favoritism. It's really hard to not like the people you like and agree with the people you agree with. And those people you agree with, you actually like more and you keep closer to you. And those you disagree with, well, they're dumb, so we'll treat them like that, right? We're not gonna say that, but that's what we actually think. So how do we actually do this? Well, verse one tells us. Verse one tells us how to do this. Jump back to verse one, it says this. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you show favoritism to others? Here's the truth. If you want to be able to do these things, if you wanna love your neighbor, as the good Samaritan did, if you want to love God the way that he's called you to love, we have to start with Jesus. We can't start with trying to not show favoritism. Look, this is, this is, this is what I, I so often was brought up in, this idea, or I felt like it was, where it was like this. Hey, Christians, do a better job. Work harder. Be nicer. Hey, do better for God. And it was like this idea of like, I just need to like figure it out and be better. James is pointing out at the beginning that it works from the vision of Christ. You can't hope to love your neighbor if you don't look at the love of Jesus in your life. 
If you don't truly receive the love of Jesus in your life, you're not going to be able to express it to those around us, right? If we want to not show favoritism, then we have to actually realize that Jesus didn't show favoritism. Jesus invited us into relationship with him. Jesus was the one who actually showed us. And if we wanna understand it, we need to look at the life of Jesus and we need to realize his extravagant love for us. Turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse five says this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God, something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I think of myself highly, I do not think primarily of what Christ has done for me. I think of me and what I deserve and how I should be treated. And that my wife should not be acting this way. Wait, what? <laughs> Anyone though? See, if we keep it in perspective and we look at Christ, we remind ourselves of what he has done. Guys, and we can do this all the way along Jesus's life. All we have to do is look at his birth and we realize, who am I? That Christ, the King of Kings, the very one who spoke things into being, came to earth because of his love for me. Then let's keep that going, that he would live a perfect life for you and I because we couldn't do a perfect life because I wanted to sin. You wanted to sin. You wanted to live in rebellion against God. So he came, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, said no to the things that we refused to say no to because of his love for us. See, when we begin to see Jesus like this, we begin to realize, whoa, if we're lavished love like this on us, should we not lavish love on others? How can we show partiality to people? How can we show favoritism to the people that are gonna scratch our back if we realize that Jesus did something for us when we were? James is pointing out, if you think you're the rich person in this story, you're wrong. You're the poor one. And he accepted you in your brokenness, in your love. He, in his love, he accepted us. See, when we see Jesus for all he is, see, and then we go to the cross, and man, we're coming up to Easter. We're walking through Lent. We're looking at Jesus' death and resurrection, and we realize he did that for us. And then what he really means in this, in James 2, he says the glory He's talking about Jesus on his throne, his glorious state that we should realize when we realize and see him for who he is, what other response is it to but love him? And when we realize that this God almighty in splendor and glory did all these things for us, what would we hold back from those around us? Even those who might vote differently than you even those who support groups that you don't support. But your love 
is so compelled because of Christ's love for you that you love people in such a way that it is absolutely different. The world tells us you need to break off into your subgroups because those people are crazy and you need to do nothing with those crazy people. But Christ says, I accept you and love you. And here's Here's what I need you to understand. When we talk about love, we do not talk about love like the world talks about love. We talk about love according to Christ. Christ's love is a transformative love. It says, come to me with your brokenness, with your shame, and I love you so much that I will transform you into my image. This is what the church should be known for. And then finally, he ends with verse 11 and 12, and I'll close with this or sorry, 12 and 11, 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. This is gonna be my dad moment. This is not a threat, it is a promise. Let me read it again. Whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. Verse 13. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Two things that we see in this passage. If we wanna be the church, that James is talking about, if we wanna be different than the world, in a world that is full of judgment and cancel culture, based on one post that you have, or one comment that you make, or one picture that they see, in a world that does that, we're meant to be the opposite. We're meant to be a group, a church of, of, of mercy. Look at this. He says this, in light of judgment, you should be kind to others. Now, all my parents in the house, you know, you know this to be true, okay? When you're in public and everybody, I know everyone's judging my parenting when they see me walk around. And I'm aware of it because I've been trained by English parents that everyone is watching you all the time and there are expectations on you. And so I'm a really good, gracious father when people are around, but at home, maybe not so much. Are you serious? The sock again, the sock again. How do we not have pairs? I know how we don't have pairs because you don't put them in together ever. Hypothetically. <laughs> but if I'm in public, they're like, oh, they're wearing different socks. Yeah. Characters, <laughs> just characters. These guys. <laughs> It's not about the fact that there's no, there's no pairs. There's none anywhere. Two baskets full of socks, no pairs anywhere. Rosie has no pair. Uh, she has different socks on today. I'm like, we're going to church. You have to wear. But the truth is this, right? When we live in light of judgment, we live differently. When we know that we're being judged based on what we're doing, we are more aware of what we are doing. True? And this is what James is saying. He's not threatening the church, 
but he is letting us know, hey, we are accountable to someone greater. We will sit before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we will be judged one day. Make sure you act like that. I like how the ESV says it. It says this, same, same verses, 12 and 13. So speak and so act as, though, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who, sh- who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Guys, we should be known as a community, as a church of mercy. Should be a house of mercy where people come in and are loved and mercy is is extravagantly given to people. In a world of judgment, James is saying, Be a community of mercy. And what's so interesting is that when you read this, you cannot help but jump to another of Jesus' teachings. You can't. It's going to come right away. You've already thought of it. The unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. It's the, it's the story where this man, he owes the, the king millions, it says in our daily terms. Millions of dollars and he can't pay the debt. And he says, he says please uh, forgive me, forgive me. And for some reason, the king is gracious and, and extends forgiveness of these millions to him. And then it says that this same servant goes and he actually goes before one of his friends, his, his co-servants, and they owe him a couple thousand, and it says that he actually sends him to prison. And the, his other slaves, the word gets back because no one likes when people treat people unfairly, right? So the word gets back to the king, and then the king throws this ungrateful servant. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is this. Those who have been given and forgiven much The whole world, anybody assumes that that person would show grace to someone who owes them less, right? This is what he's saying to us, church. We are a community of mercy and grace because we understand the grace and the mercy that has been extended to us. We must look at Christ Jesus in his glory and what he has done for us. And when we see that, we will extravagantly pour out grace and mercy on those around us, even those who we disagree with. Corey Ten Boone was, um, was a woman who grew up in and around World War II. And she lived in Holland. And uh, one of the things that she did, her, her father was a, a clockmaker, and what they did was they, they hid Jews from the Nazi Germany. And eventually, they got caught um, and sent to concentration camps. And so they get sent to this one concentration camp where um, Betsy, who is the older sister of Corrie Ten Boom, she dies. And eventually, obviously we know the story, um, they get set free. And so she she is set free, but she knows the Lord and feels a calling to preach the gospel. And so in post-World War II Europe, she begins to 
create these homes for, for um, Holocaust survivors. And so she ministers to them, tells them about um, God's forgiveness. And God, this is how cool God is. He actually opens doors where this, this um, concentration camp survivor actually got to go back to Germany and preach to them about the forgiveness of Jesus. Talk about taking broken things and making it beautiful. Well, she tells this story that in 1947, she went to this church in Munich. And this is, this is they're still rebuilding and they're broken, she says, in Germany. And she goes there and she teaches on forgiveness. And she says that if you, her, one of her favorite things to say was that if you give your sins to Jesus, that he will cast them into the sea and they will fall to the deepest depths where no one will ever see them and they will be forgiven. And that was like her big thing. And she said that when she would preach in Germany, in post-war Germany, no one would come to talk to her, that no one would ask questions. They would just hear the message it would be heavy, and then everyone would exit in silence. She said this one service, as everyone is exiting, she can see this man. He's, a, he's an older man, balding, heavy set, and he's making his way to her. She said in a moment, it flashed before her eyes. Not a man in a suit, but actually a man in a uniform with the skull and crossbones that those soldiers would wear in the concentration camps. And in that moment, she realized right away that, she, that he was one of her captors and one of her, her guards. And he came up and said, you mentioned this, this concentration camp. She said, he said, I want you to know that since the war, I've come to know Jesus and he's forgiven the horrible things I've done. But I wonder would you be able to forgive me? He said he extended his hand. And it said in that moment that she, she says that she was fumbling with her notebook because she could not extend her hand. She said the conviction that came upon her as someone who had just spoken so freely about forgiveness, yet could not extend the hand to someone who had treated her sister and her so poorly. He said it again to her and he said, would you be able to forgive me? She said this inner dialogue, which he, she said probably took seconds, but felt like hours. Said, I have no emotion to give you. I have no forgiveness to give you. She's saying to the Lord. She said, I can extend my hand, but Lord, I need you to extend the feelings. And I'll read you what she wrote because I just think she says it better. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. Tears began to fill my eyes. And I said, I forgive you, brother. I cried with my whole heart. For, as long, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands 
this former guard and former prisoner. She said, I have never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. This is the church where a Nazi soldier can stand with a prisoner and can worship Jesus together. This is mercy extended. It is not normal. It is not worldly. It is supernatural from our savior alone. When we understand the forgiveness that has been lavished upon us, we then can extend it to those who hurt us. And the church, guys, the church, this is what the world needs to see. Needs to see a, a people who do not show favoritism, who love unconditionally, and who show mercy even when we are hurt. This is what the world needs to walk into when they walk into the walls of the church and say, wow, there is something different that the world does not have that lives here. And his name is Jesus, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's so easy for us to talk about concepts and to, to look at your word and, and to pull principles from it. But it's another thing for us to live it. Jesus, we want to live your word. We want to be a community. We want to be a people. We want to be your church known for love, known for mercy, that will treat the rich and the poor with such extravagant love. We'll treat those who we agree with and treat those we don't agree with with such extravagant love. But it's hard in this culture. It's so easy to fall into our, our, our views and fall into what we believe and and villainize those who believe differently. But Lord, we're asking that we could be different. That we could be your church with such love and the love that you've poured out on us that we would pour out to those around us. We don't know how to do it. We cannot do it in our own strength. But we look to you, Jesus. It's not for us to do just simply by gritting and bearing it, but it is for us to do by submitting to you, Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.